Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Plants are around us every day, but there's still so much to learn about how they work. From whether it be the importance of boreal forests and a rare metal to trapping nitrogen in our soils, as well as how plants can grow together and thrive in really hostile environments. Plus, the way photosynthesis works and the way it can be boosted to help be more efficient through the aid of a special protein. Now you might be familiar with photosynthesis, the process by which plants through their leaves and their chlorophyll manage to turn carbon dioxide, some water and some light into oxygen and glucose and some off water, which basically this combination process is what enables us to have an atmosphere to breathe, us to get food, to live, and basically form the basis of a lot of ecosystems here on Earth. So photosynthesis is a pretty interesting and complicated process. And we've been trying to dig into and understand exactly what is happening with all of the steps along the chain. And some new research by PhD student Lorna Malone from the University of Sheffield's Department of Molecular Biology and Biotechnology has shed some light on a mechanism, the way in which the photosynthesis process actually works that had been not fully understood until now. And these results were published in the journal Nature. It's a pretty prestigious place because it's a pretty interesting finding. So let's take a step back and first look at the things that are involved in photosynthesis. Now, you remember that Chlorophyll is one of the things that is often involved in photosynthesis and this is a pigment and basically its job is to absorb the light and ultimately release an electron. This electron then helps along in the chemical process. This is the energy that's needed as part of the photosynthesis process. So basically what happens, this is why light is a key part of the process often, is that light hits a reaction center, basically a part of the leaf or the plant cell, where a pigment molecule such as chlorophyll releases an electron in response to being bombarded with photons. Then that electron has to do something and go somewhere, and generally through what we call the electron transport chain, which generates energy uh, in some forms, which is then used to produce ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is basically the food or the energy or the batteries for most cells. It's basically like a chemical little battery or energy cell, which cells use as part of their consumption and reproduction. So the emission, transport and harnessing of that electron that's unleashed as part of the photosynthesis process is what helps make photosynthesis happen and convert all of that incoming carbon dioxide, light and water into oxygen, water and of course glucose that the plants need to survive. So what Lorna Malone and the researchers from University of Shepherd were digging into is how exactly this electrical current that's passed through the cell is harnessed and the way and the structure that is used to convert that stored and to then use to make ATP, which is this energy currency for living cells that we talked about before. Now, to study this, they had to build a pretty complex model. And what they're actually trying to model were the two protein complexes that actually provide the electrical connection between two different types of light-powered chlorophyll proteins. Um, this is referred to as photosystems one and two. So these are proteins which are filled with chlorophyll that are found in the plant cells known as chloroplast. 
This is what helps convert the sunlight into chemical energy. And by studying the electrical connection between these two and looking at it using a cryo-electron microscope, they could see the key role played by an important piece of the puzzle. And that's of cytochrome B6F. And basically, the job of cytochrome B6F is to make and tune the response, the phytosynthetic response, depending on the environmental conditions. So you think about a plant or like a solar panel. You don't want it to produce too much electricity that you burn all your wires in the case of a really, really, really sunny day. Um, or for a plant, in the case of being exposed to excessive light or in a drought, you want to sort of taper off and not use up all your water to make sure that you still have enough to survive on. And so plants actually regulate the efficiency of their photosynthesis process in order to accommodate for the different conditions and available resources. Too much light, they sort of taper it back. Not enough light, they dial it up. And so that's what they were trying to understand here. And it seems that cytochrome B6F is part of the beating heart photosynthesis plays a crucial role in regulating the efficiency of the overall of that process. As reader from the University of Sheffield's Department of Biochemistry, Dr. Matt Johnson's outlined. Now, previous studies have shown by manipulating the levels of this cytochrome in the complex, you can get bigger and better plants. And by now actually having a clear picture of which part of that complex is responsible for improving the yield or improving the amount of photosynthesis results, it actually could be used to help design crop plants that are able to achieve much, much higher yields depending on the environmental conditions. And that's pretty important because we've talked about before, population growth is projected to reach 9 to 10 billion levels here on Earth by 2050. And we need a good way to improve the yields of our plants in order to be able to meet that. So now that we understand cytochrome B6F's role in regulating proteins and help improving photosynthesis, now we can try to optimize and tune that level to boost the yields of photosynthesis depending on the amount of available resources. And that's why this paper was published in the journal Nature, because it is a great example of a complex part of a simple process that we understand, such as photosynthesis. You would probably understand it yourselves, but the actual workings and the details of this process is still something that scientists are actively working on today to better understand. And once we understand, of course, we can help optimize and improve. Some great research out of the University of Sheffield. The lead author on this paper was Lorna Malone. When it comes to nature, we tend to think of things in a zero-sum game. That is, there has to be a winner and a loser, survival of the fittest and all of that. But when it comes to plants, some new research from the University of Portsmouth shows that, well, it might not be so simple and easy to brush it all aside and say that each plant is competing fiercely with another. Because the growth between a older plant and a younger sapling plant can actually have some mutually beneficial results for both the nurse plant and the sapling. 
And this is some research being investigated by the University of Portsmouth, Dr. Rocio Perez Barrales and Dr. Alicia Montesinius Navarro from the Desertification and Research Center in Valencia in Spain. Now, what they've been studying, which they recently published in the journal Perspectives in Plant Ecology, is the relationship between two types of plant, one older and one younger, an established larger plant, which for the purpose of the study they've called a nurse plant, and a seedling, one freshly growing plant. And what they were looking at in particular is how plants grow in harsh environments. Now, if you're at the top of a mountain or maybe in some sand dunes, in all these difficult environments, it's easy to think that with resources scarce and the terrain so formidable, that competition between a more established plant would prevent any young saplings from taking place because that big plant is going to suck up all the nutrients and water and leave that sapling to die off and wither away. But what they found in, in these really harsh environments is actually a pretty curious effect. Not just that the sapling manages to grow, but it's actually win-win for both the sapling and the more established nurse plant. Now, what they looked at in this study is the entire plant's life cycle from seed germination, establishment, and growth, all the way through flowering. And what they've seen is that over a long period of time, there are clear benefits for both the established plant and the sapling. Now, of course, the sapling gets a lot of simple and obvious immediate benefits from the more established plant, particularly in harsh climates. And in this study, they actually grow them in gypsum, which is a really poor soil with little nutrients. And they would have grown outside in southern Spain over three months during summer, hardly ideal growing seasons in a pretty tough soil. Now, the seedling actually benefit a lot from the shade provided by the more established plants. And because the established plant had leaf litter, there was actually more moisture in the soil and a few more nutrients because those leaves were decomposing, getting chewed by microbes and bugs, and well, generally makes a healthier environment, which means there's more than likely a higher bacteria and fungi content in the soil, which of course makes it ideal growing terrain for a young seedling, much more than the gypsum that the soil would normally be filled with. But another interesting outcome was that Overall, on the nurse plant, they actually saw a huge increase in the flowering of that plant. And this is pretty interesting because it had a higher flower density. And this higher density with a combination of nurse plant and some younger newer plants attracted more pollinators. So by having this diversity between young and old, there's actually another flow on benefit for improving the ecosystem. This benefits the nurse plant because, well, if there's more pollinators visiting, that means more sources of nitrogen and, per and other things to be along to help with pollination to help the plant grow. So in general, the nursing plant actually gets a big boost in biodiversity, which makes it much more resilient to any other climate shocks, but also makes it grow faster and stronger, especially in the long term. So this is a pretty interesting study because it shows how plants, even in tough environments where you wouldn't normally expect them to grow well, they actually manage to collaborate together pretty well, especially when you have plants of different life cycles and ages planted together. And normal in a nice, healthy living garden, you wouldn't need to worry about something like this, especially if your plants are all planted at the same time. But for those who are trying to grow in a difficult place with not great conditions, planting with different species of different ages, the research suggests, will probably help your plants thrive in that particular location more than if you'd used another method. There's some great research from the University of Portsmouth which goes to highlight the way that plants can be more collaborative than it's, you might first
Now, we've talked about the nitrogen cycle here a few times on Lagrange Point, but to recap, our atmosphere is made of 78% of nitrogen, and it makes up 3% of the human body. It's a really important part of the Earth's ecosystem. In fact, wars have been fought over access to nitrogen, as well as incredible ventures of mining and exploration to uncover new and new ways to make better fertilizer with part of the nitrogen process. After all, being able to produce fertilizer through a combination of chemistry and chemical engineering was enabled the human population on the earth to flourish because we could get higher and higher yields from our crop. And this is a huge part of the industrial revolution and the journey into the modern era. But understanding the nitrogen cycle and the way in which plants process nitrogen is also very important. Because, as we know, the atmosphere has a lot of atmospheric nitrogen in it, but plants and natural systems sadly can't access it. It's all around a plant, and though it can extract CO2 from the air and turn that into water and H2O through the process of photosynthesis, it can't easily extract nitrogen from the air. Now, nitrogen is incredibly important for microbes that live in soil because they can convert nitrogen into ammonia, and the ammonia can be accessed by plants. And we call this process nitrogen fixation. Now, often we rely on soybeans and other legumes to help facilitate nitrogen fixation because they can extract nitrogen from atmosphere and turn that into healthy soil with some ammonia in it. But the problem is that plants can't really get that nitrogen that's around them. They rely on these microbial nitrogen fixes to help incorporate a pretty complex protein into the process. Now, one of the things about that protein, is it's, which is called a nitrogenase, is that it has a metal-rich core. And researchers have been trying to understand this metal-rich core specifically. And one of the common ones basically one of the key nitrogenases has a really really specific metal core and that's it contains molybdenum now why molybdenum helps turn nitrogen into an accessible form of nitrogen with ammonia which plants can chow down on is difficult to understand but effectively a metal is required as a core but the problem is if you don't have any of these metals available in your soil well how can this nitrogen fixation process take place do we need this availability of this particular metal? And molybdenum isn't exactly a very common one. It's not like iron, for example. So the scarcity of molybdenum places nature's ability to help, you know, convert and fix nitrogen from one form into another to a very limited range. But researchers from Princeton University have been studying a large 600-kilometer stretch of boreal forest in Canada to help understand the nitrogen fixation process and what plants do if they don't have any molybdenum around. And they published it in the journal of Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Now, what they found is that, well, when there isn't any molybdenum to, to make use of as a middle core for the nitrogenase process, well, they'll latch on to something else. In particular, the whole process can be catalyzed, in this case, by the metal vanadium. And they found that, particularly in the northern regions of these forests, where there's limited nitrogen, nitrogen available, they really, plants have to rely on this metal in the soil to help them get nitrogen from somewhere, in this case, through the atmosphere.
Now, of course, this is the backup plan for plants. Typically, they will try and use molybdenum if it's there, but if not, well, they'll resort to another alternative. It's not their preferred option, but they can make it work. And this makes sense because scientists have long theorized that it's possible that plants have backup mechanisms to cope for the fact that a rare metal may not just happen to be lying around in the soils around them. And this is the first time we actually have proof of that. But what this also means is that we have to change our understanding of the role boreal forests, these forests in this sort of northern area of the hemisphere, it's called the boreal region, and we need to reevaluate the way in which these forests help mitigate climate change by acting as a sink for anthropogenic carbon as well as nitrogen. What this means is that if we haven't really thought that these plants could be processing and fixing, uh, fixing nitrogen into the soil, well, now we need to reevaluate that because chances are they can. But it also means we need to think more about the way metal pollution in the air and the atmosphere can spread and play a role in changing the fixation of nitrogen and interrupting the nitrogen cycle. Because if metals like molybdenum and vanadium start traveling through the air and through air pollution, they can alter the micro and macronutrient dynamics because air can is pretty much defined as a global commons, which means that the environmental conditions of these forests might also change. They may have access to a new metal which might help them fix more nitrogen into the soil, particularly at higher latitudes. This is some great research from Princeton University which helps us understand the lengths that plants will go to to help contribute to the nitrogen cycle and gives us a deeper understanding of the importance of things like boreal forests in helping regulate the global climate in terms of carbon dioxide emissions but also in helping manage the nitrogen cycle. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From rare metals in boreal forests in Canada to understanding the way that plants can grow together and improving photosynthesis. All this week and more stories about plants and improving our understanding of them. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.